Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. Our system is, in too many ways, broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamrani, and on today's Making Contact, we have part two of The Agony and the Ecstasy, Race and the Future of the Love Story. So last week, we talked to Constance Grady, a Vox reporter who led us through the race debate in 2019 in the Romance Writers of America. Basically, the RWA got called out, they tried to ignore it, then they got really called out and realized that they had to change. So they called off their award ceremony, they hired a diversity consultant. And then finally, in February, what is left of the board resigns. An interim board comes in and they say that in the five months they have left before they get a new permanent board, they are going to try to completely overhaul RWA. And all of this is going to be happening in the middle of a pandemic. This week, we want to talk to you about what happened next. But we also want to talk about why this race debate within this seemingly small corner of the writing world is actually very important and why we should care about the RWA if we don't even read romance. And one of the first things to point out is that romance is not a small part of the writing world. Basically, if you want to make money through books, become a romance novelist. In 2019, more than 40 million romance books were sold through conventional formats. So this isn't counting like self-publishing, people putting things on, on Amazon. This is just counting standard like Harlequin romance novels. That made more than $336 million in sales, and it represented 18% of total fiction sales in America in 2019. But because of the gatekeeping we talked about in part one, black and brown authors and queer authors aren't getting the kinds of contracts that would allow them to live off of their art, which in of itself is important. But if we only focus on the value of the market, diversity becomes just something that we're trying to sell. There is a potential for issues like race to be tokenized and to become purely a marketing tag. And so I've often tried to get folks to think a little harder about what it is that they're championing and what it is that they think they're raising the flag for. That's Professor Jirashri Kamblay, who studies romance at LaGuardia Community College in New York. And she argues that even within all people of color organizations, there are still problems with colorism, caste, with class. Because it's not possible to bring that kind of nuance unless the industry itself has a really granular level of diversity, right? Like you can't just have, oh, yes, I have my, you know, my Indian editor. Like your Indian editor brings a lot of baggage with them. So why else is the race debate within the RWA important? Well, because the RWA isn't the only organization dealing with the aftermath of racism within its ranks. 
In fact, it's really a microcosm of what's happening all over the country as we grapple with our collective future. And that's really what's at stake. Shayna McDavis Conway studies social change, and she's also a romance fan who, by the way, really loves Amish romance novels. I absolutely love them. <laughs> I will fight for my Amish romance novels. I do prefer gay Amish romance novels, which is a very, very tiny subgenre of a subgenre, which, you know, I wish more people would write. <laughs> so if you're listening, please write more gay Amish romance novels for Shayna. She's also a staff reviewer for a podcast called Smart Trashy Books, which we can't actually say that word on air, so we had to bleep it out. And Shayna argues that more radical romances have been foreshadowing a possible future for this country. Where different types of families are accepted and, you know, beloved and are central to communities that might not be the present. And that there's an ideological battle playing out between the old guard and the newer writers. And you can really see it in two kinds of novels. One are romances that write about marginalized people, about people of color, about queer people, about disabled people and their happiness, which often includes resolving um, structural conflicts in their lives, community conflicts, overcoming issues of oppression as part of that. And romances that uh, more traditionally focus on a kind of white, colonialist, imperialist, straight, Christian perspective. So the battle over the industry of the love story is also a battle over who gets to control happiness and who's worthy of happiness, which is especially interesting in the context of the RWA because it was actually started by a Black woman named Vivian Stevens. She was at a publishing conference in 1980 in Houston, and a bunch of romance novelists came to her and they said, listen, we're trying to get published, but no one here is taking us seriously because we're romance writers. What are we going to do? You know, you're the one person who knows about this stuff right now. And Vivian Stevens said, OK, I think you need to band together and get some group solidarity going here. And she convinced her publisher to invest some money in the idea of making a professional group for these women. And that was what became RWA. I would say she probably is responsible for American romance as we know it. Constance, what happened with the RWA if it was started by a Black editor? Why is it in this position now with race? Yeah, that's a big question that I had when I was first reporting on this. And when I talked to a lot of members of RWA, former members who are members of color, what they said was that over time, the institutional memory kind of just faded away. You know, Vivian Stevens eventually steps down from RWA. She's mostly replaced by white leadership. And this idea that had at the beginning been kind of intrinsic to RWA, that this is a place where we support each other and especially support writers of color, just became instead, this is a place where we support white ladies writing stories about other nice white ladies falling in love. But Vivian Stevens' legacy is now being revived. The award ceremony, once called the Rita's, is now called the Vivian's. And the RWA is trying to regain the trust of its members, which isn't an easy task, given the racism people encountered over the decades. If you look at the romance genre in particular over the years, it has been predominantly white. Um, you know, nobody can argue that. That's a fact. That was Claire Brett. She's the current president of the board of the RWA. And Claire Brett, along with the current secretary, Sierra London, 
wanted to talk to me about the changes the organization has made since 2019. Sierra, let's start with you. How did you react to what happened in 2019 as a member of the RWA? Honestly, I was like, obviously, this is a conversation that we need to have in RWA, like so many other organizations, you know, across the globe at this point, when you talk about race and uh, and gender issues. And um, it really made me want to step up. It was one of the reasons why I elected to run for the Entrium Board, because I wanted to be a part of the conversation and I wanted to add my voice to the conversation. And, and Claire, I can see you nodding. Would you like to add something? Yeah, I completely agree with what Sierra said. I've always been that person that just rolls up their sleeves and says, okay, what's the solution? What, what's the next step? And I think we can look to other organizations. We can look to um, our culture as a whole. Not, none of these things are things that change overnight. And I think that's frustrating all the way around because we would like in our culture to have everything be equal and fair and inclusive, but it, it's cultural. Culture doesn't change overnight. It's every single aspect of our organization has to be looked at and considered as we move forward. So on that point, you know, the award ceremony, even after they were renamed, continues to be a sore point for authors because they felt like racist books kept getting nominated. How is the organization dealing with the award ceremony? I was on the board um, this past year when there was an issue with one of the nominees. I will say that the board decided that they needed to have an internal investigation done on the whole contest. And the decision was made when this all happened to not run our contest this year until the task force was able to finish and do as much of a deep dive as they felt they needed to do. And that report has not come to the board as finished yet. So the board members were not aware that this book was an issue because none of us had anything to do with that side of the contest. So all I can say is we stopped the contest immediately and chose to do a deep dive into how can we make this better before we bring it out again to our members. And Sierra, that's not the only change that's been made within the organization. And I wanted to give the organization a chance to talk about those changes. What else has been done? So um, some of the things we've done, we started with our board. Like we talked about what types of issues and this was before this 2022 board, but the interim board, like we talked about what types of inquiries are we getting from our members? Like, what are our members, what are they saying? What's happening across the chapters in the organization, right? And um, during that process, not only did we start doing chapter outreach, talking with our chapter leaderships, but we actually started having town hall meetings that our actual members could come to and talk to us about what's your RWA experience been? What's happening? And how are issues being addressed or are they not being addressed? And that's a conversation that continues. 
Also, we went through a six-month review process of our own code of ethics. We also hired a professional DEIA professional to come in and develop training modules, not just for the staff, but also for us in leadership um, positions. Because when you talk about race and gender, it could be so challenging for some folks to even raise the topic. You know, after 2019, the RWA lost a lot of its membership. And I'm curious to know, do you think the RWA has a future or a role to play at this point in the romance industry or has it become obsolete? Romance is a billion dollar industry. And what we are learning is doors that were closed to romance before, even in the educational sector, you are seeing now colleges that want romance writers on their staff. They want their students to learn about the genre of romance and the tenets of romance and how to write romance. Because romance is about intimacy. And if anything, COVID has shown us is that intimacy is more than physical. It's about connection, right? And so learning how to craft characters that readers can connect with is what you need really in every genre. So is RWA positioned to still be able to help writers, whether you're a new writer or you've been in the game a while, to mentor, to educate, to build lasting networks? Absolutely. I would not be where I am right now as a writer if it were not for all the wonderful people that I met through RWA and the quality education that I received. So yes, do we need a presence like RWA in the marketplace, in the industry? Absolutely. And that's sort of the end of the RWA saga. The organization continues to work on diversity. It's trying to rebuild the membership. And honestly, there's no clear ending to this story because the path forward after a massive callout is unclear. Can an organization change? Or should we just scrap an institution entirely and start over with something else? These questions came up for me a lot during this piece, and it actually brings us to the second half of today's show. And for that, we're actually bringing in our interim executive director, Jessica Partnow. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jessica, you were my editor for this story, and I'm curious to know if you'd heard anything about the race debate within the Romance Writers of America? Yeah, I had not heard anything specifically about what happened in the RWA, but, I mean, I thought it was just fascinating. And it's something that so many organizations are going through. I think sometimes we think these things are more mysterious than they really are. You know, it's about money and power. And when you're used to having that privilege, having that power, you want to protect it and keep it. So it can be kind of straightforward sometimes. And so you're joining me to talk about power and money and race in a completely different area in journalism, because I felt like there was a, another story buried within the one about the RWA, and that's about institutional change. And since so much of what happened at the RWA is also happening within journalism and at making contacts, I thought maybe discussing our own battle with race might help us gain some clarity. So stay tuned. 
We'll be back to talk about race and journalism right after the break. We're just jumping in to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact and part two of The Agony and the Ecstasy, Race and the Future of the Love Story. If you'd like to find out more information, please visit us online at radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. You know, Jessica, before we jump into this topic, you mentioned that while you were excited to talk about race and making contact and in journalism, it also made you kind of nervous. Can you explain why? Yeah, I I think part of it is that it's scary to admit that you don't have all the answers. I don't know if there's a right way to go through a racial reckoning as an organization, but I know there's a lot of ways to make mistakes. And then also, as I was thinking about this conversation this morning, it's I feel very responsible also for protecting the safety of the people that are part of this organization. And it can be dangerous to have this conversation. I mean, in journalism organizations all over the place, including Making Contact, we've received really negative feedback for having some of these conversations about race. So that's part of it, too. I I don't want to expose us or expose the people who work for Making Contact in a way that's potentially harmful. Yeah, and you know, I'm really glad you brought up the safety question because this isn't the first outlet that I've worked at that has received sometimes personally threatening comments from listeners, particularly when we talk about race. But I don't want that to stop us from having a conversation like this. And also because it was very difficult for me to find organizations that have been going through something similar to talk about their journey, what had worked, what hadn't worked, especially because they were worried that they, you know, quote unquote, weren't there yet and they hadn't fixed all of their problems. But, you know, that makes it really hard for us to learn from each other. And, you know, when Shana was talking in the first half about the battle for the future that's being played out in romance novels, I think about that a lot because for one side, it's very clear. You know, it's ban abortion, don't say the word gay in school, ban books, ban discussions about race. But for the other side, the way forward is a little bit more vague and less absolute. And so, you know, really exploring the imperfections of the way forward is important. And so in that spirit of openness, let's jump into it and talk about the big picture for a second. And Jessica, you've been a journalist a lot longer than me. Could you explain the crisis journalism is in right now? It's funny. In some ways, like, I think that journalism has been in crisis for my entire career, right, <laughs> for the past 20 years. Um, the first crisis was the Internet and journalism not being ready for what the democratizing of access to publishing would really mean. And I think now... For so many white journalists, there was this moment of realization with the 2016 presidential election that, oh, we don't really know what's happening in this country. And that's because we are in our bubbles, right? Siloed. And I do think the industry is starting to examine, like, does it actually matter to have really different experience lived experiences and perspectives in the newsroom in terms of how we can responsibly cover and understand what's going on in the news right which is very similar to that basic diversity question within the RWA and there's also this same sort of power struggle i think happening i was also thinking while reporting on the RWA when Shannon was talking about the two 
competing viewpoints of the world that arise when you have different kinds of people writing love stories. In some ways, that's also true of journalism. There's this ideological battle about what counts as truth. Yes. And I think in journalism for so long, we've been clinging to this idea that objectivity is truth. And this idea that as an objective journalist, I can be outside of the fray and be this sort of omniscient observer and spectator on the world. But we live in a culture of white supremacy. So also, that's really what is meant by so-called objective journalism, I think. It's, it's about maintaining the status quo, maintaining the systems of white supremacy and patriarchy and all of that. That is what has to be held constant. Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, I do feel like journalists, especially being pushed by the influx of people of color and queer people into the field, are examining what objectivity even means and if it's possible. And whether we want to just let the world run on its course and then report on it, or whether journalism has a place in the world of movement building and healing. But I do think that idea is still pretty challenging for a lot of traditional older journalists to stomach. And, you know, and it can be taken to such an extreme. Um, and I think it can be kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, I have heard many journalists over the years say, like, oh, I don't vote because I need to maintain my objectivity, which is just, to me, like, bonkers. And we're lying to ourselves. Even if you're not voting, you have an opinion. You have skin in this game. It's the world that we all live in, and it affects you. It affects the people that you love. Trying to tell yourself that you could be somehow outside of that, I think, is inaccurate. And I think that as journalists, we can all agree that accuracy is really, really important to our jobs. And I guess this is a good place to mention that we're also struggling with all of this at our own organization here at Making Contact. And we're not even a traditional media organization, and yet we're also having a race reckoning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've heard you say in other conversations, Salima, that we became a majority women of a color organization almost by accident. The, the production team evolved and became all women of color. And then as a longtime executive director was leaving the organization, there was a real desire to hire a person of color to lead the organization in its next phase. And, you know, I think for Sonia, who came in as the next executive director and is an incredible leader person, the organization was so glad to have her. Um, but I think that as an organization, we didn't fully realize how much more needs to change if you're going to become a truly Black-led or a truly person of color-led organization. Um, and I think as organizations, sometimes we'll sort of We'll be in this panic about fixing racism or responding to it or saying, like, how can we do this differently? Um, how can we be better? I know. We'll hire a person of color and that's going to fix it, right? Uh, we'll create a DEI department and hire a person of color to run it. And all of those things are good, but there's also so much more visibilizing of invisible stuff that has to happen. And that is really, really hard. Right. And, and we didn't really take a step back to think about whether the systems we had in place were equitable, whether we'd had any real conversations or talked about the values or the beliefs of the organization. We kind of just put the burden of race on the new leader, which didn't go over well. And 
I think Sonia decided that the best way forward for the organization was for her to step down and for us to see the seriousness of the problem. And then Jessica, you came in as an interim director. So I'm curious, you've actually been an interim director for organizations before. Can you talk to me about what you think changes an organization like Making Contact? Yeah, I mean, I've been a part of a lot of nonprofits that are trying to have this conversation with themselves of what does it mean to be an anti-racist organization? What does that look like? How how can we be an organization that's trying to create liberating structures? Um, and it it's painful when you first start to have this conversation as an organization. Um, but I think always the first step is realizing that you have a problem, right? You know, I, I interviewed somebody about this topic. His name is CJ Broderick, and he works for an organization called the Equity Project. Equitable systems and institutions begin with equity-conscious individuals. So if people can change, then the institutions that they control can change. But it is a process, and we try to be supportive in that process. And here's what he said about the way racism affects the places that we work and how we work. White people have controlled the institutions, whether it's our government, whether it's our legal system, our education system, for a long time. The ways in which they've chosen to organize their work, to organize the institutions, the ways they've chosen to see themselves, the way they've chosen to see others, that has been replicated in, in, in our works. In this case, in how, what we publish, what we put on TV, right? All these different things have been replicated through the viewpoints of white people. And so we talk about white supremacy culture at institutions. We're talking about certain attributes, certain characteristics that we ascribe to as, oh, this is the norm. This is what's valued. This is what should be, this is what's superior. It was actually such a relief to me to hear that framing as a white person. I think I had been doing all of this worrying that people were going to, I don't know, like discover that I'm white or that I benefit from white supremacy culture. Um, and so maybe if I just try to be a really, really good white person, then, you know, I'll never mess anything up. Um, but so it, w it was a relief to realize, like, that is not a thing. <laughs> It's not possible. Yeah. And I guess once you realize that it does open up some possibilities, um, here's CJ again. So the problem with white supremacy culture and, and the attributes of white supremacy culture, it's not that they're all inherently bad or evil or, or just wrong. The point is that we need to consider how to give people in an organization a choice as to what's norm, what's the, the goal, and not just say, okay, well, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson felt this way, so this is how we should all feel hundreds of years later, right? Now, if you talk about making organizations diverse, inclusive, equitable, there's an opportunity for us to choose culture, to create culture, right? But often we inherit culture and pass it down from generation to generation. And so we come into an organization and we say, oh, they've always done it this way. This is how it should be. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and then this also speaks to why it's so valuable to not have only white people in the room. Like if you have different examples of different cultural practices in the room, we might realize, hey, maybe we could try and do things this other way. You know, I also love that this felt empowering, the way he talks about it, that during this painful process, maybe we can end up with more choice and freedom in our workplaces and in our churches and in our political organizations. 
And I mean, we could have this conversation all day. And really, we're just starting to open up this topic for ourselves and for our listeners. And so my last question for you, Jessica, is do you actually think organizations can change? And if so, how? All organizations are made up of people. People are imperfect. There is just there's no such thing as like perfect organization, perfect racial justice transformation, any of that. And I think that organizational change happens exactly the same way that change happens for individuals, right? Um, You have to be able to see what's going on. You can, like, understand, process, work through, and change your behavior, right? And organizations can do exactly that. None of us are probably going to be able to fix racism, period, full stop. But what we can be doing is looking at the ways that we're perpetuating harmful systems and try to change that. Thank you so much, Jessica. And that does it for today's show. Before we leave you today, sort of piggybacking off of today's discussion, Jessica is leaving us soon, and we are looking for a new executive director. So if you're excited to work at a media organization that's committed to transparency and change, please visit our website for more information, radioproject.org. Making contact team includes Anita Johnson, Jessica Partnell, Sabine Blazin. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.